So we find that if a video is posted on 4chan for any other reason than uh, calling for an attack, people may go and comment there, but the hate speech would be low, okay? While uh, if actually the purpose is a coordinated attack, we see a spike in hate speech. Viral networks. Viral networks. Viral networks. You're listening to Viral Networks, a look at the current state of mis and disinformation online with the scholars studying it from the front lines. We're your hosts, Emily Boardman and Deloy. everyone and welcome back. You just heard from Gianluca Stringini, a researcher from Boston University studying how communities online make deceptive content go viral. Today on Viral Networks, we'll be talking about deceptive behaviors. That's the B in Camille Francois' disinformation ABC. But behaviors is a broad category. We'll touch a bit on disinformation content and the people responsible for it. But mainly in this episode, we're focused on how it moves around. That's right. The big question today is, how does disinformation go viral? It certainly doesn't happen by accident. If you've seen a viral piece of disinformation, there's a good chance that it was the result of a coordinated disinformation campaign. And today we'll be talking to three people who are trying to understand exactly how that coordination works. You'll hear from Fabio Gigletto, who studied the spread of COVID-19-related mis- and disinformation in Italy, and Gianluca Stringini, who has developed methods for detecting how such campaigns are usually developed on one platform and carried out on another. But first, we wanted to understand the basics of coordination and inauthentic behavior with the help of someone who has been studying the phenomena since before there was really language to describe it. That would be Ray Serrato. Ray works at Twitter now, but for years he studied influence operations in Indonesia, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Myanmar. I am Ray Serrato. I'm an open source investigator using um, data analysis and open source research methods to investigate human rights violations, uh, information operations, and maybe more broadly, um, uh, abuse that takes place on platforms. The term that I like most is is um, maybe influence operations or information operations, but influence operations primarily is, you know, that it describes kind of a coordinated effort uh, or aim to manipulate or um, in some way impact public debate for some kind of goal. And that goal can be political, social, or economic. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I would call an influence operation. And, and I think at first, at the beginning, at least, right, Brexit, post-Brexit, post-2016 elections, there was this like singular focus on fake news as a, you know, that was the, that was the watchword, right? All over the world, I think. But I, I think maybe, yeah, there began, there was maybe a, a framework began to emerge in which I could understand this a bit better, personally. I mean, I, I, I kind of realized what was happening, but I didn't think I could name it properly in the way. And I would also say that there, there wasn't, I think back then, maybe 2015, I wasn't reading a lot of literature. And also, I would say, I don't think there's been, there wasn't a lot of literature anyways on the topic, uh, at least as it relates to information operations. 
2015 was the year that Ray started looking at disinformation campaigns in Myanmar surrounding the country's elections. We wanted Ray to start at square one, explaining what he found. So what characteristics are you looking for in your investigations when you're trying to identify coordinated behavior? I can tell you that the first time I looked at data was, yeah, I got around 2016, 17, where I was looking at Facebook uh, posts from Myanmar, um, from Facebook groups uh, in Myanmar. And, and then back then, actually, back then, <laughs> Facebook had a rather open API, so you could retrieve data from groups. And, and that data would include, you know, the posts. It would also include user IDs. Timestamps today you can't get user IDs out of post, right? But it would include user IDs, so you could attribute. You could really look at the frequency of maybe somebody posting in a group or a page posting, but you know someone posting in a group in the way that you can kind of look at the frequency of posting of an account on Twitter. So that was quite fascinating because you could look at some of this activity and then say to yourself, okay, do I see a number of accounts posting repeatedly in a group? Um, with a specific frequency or time. You know, how, how does this differ from what the average person posts in the group? Um, since you had the user ideas, you could also then do a manual investigation and look at the accounts themselves to see, you know, are these accounts being operated by real people? Is there some form of automation? Um, so that's one, one aspect of it is, is indeed to look at, you know, temporal temporal activity. I think what I've learned recently is that Coordination is not really not only about maybe temporal activity, but can it can be maybe it can also include somehow like coordinated narrative messaging. When you looked at the content of their posts, you could see that, okay, the text was almost either identical or nearly identical. The images that they use for their text, so the images banners, were sometimes identical, but sometimes slightly different. Um, and this was the only thing that really linked them together. but. It was sufficient to say, at least in my view, it's sufficient to say, okay, it appears that these accounts are engaging in some kind of coordinated messaging um, simply based on the content. Um, and the, I would say also the near similarities of that content and the, you know, the images and posts. It seems that they were drawing from a kind of like, you know, here's our, here's our marker, here's our, here's our board of social media posts that we, <laughs> we mark up and here's how you can um, go ahead and, and disseminate them. Are there ways to know if those coordinated either narratives or timing-based posts are coming from humans who are working together in some type of network or whether they're bots? What is the entity that's pushing this content and, and how do you investigate that? That's, you know, that's actually one of the limitations of this work. I think as a public, you know, as a researcher who uses like the data that platforms release is that Coordination patterns alone are really insufficient for detecting, you know, an information campaign that is directed by a state actor or I think, you know, trying to attribute specific activity to to any any, you know, specific actor is extremely difficult unless they leave other kinds of traces and I think increasingly that doesn't happen anymore. So, and by traces, I mean, you know, are they using content? Are they reusing content that was used in a previous disinformation campaign in some way? Maybe they're using memes that, you know, that were used, reused previously. So the IRA did that um, uh, just in 2019, right? If I recall. That's an important takeaway. 
While researchers can trace coordinated behaviors, they can't necessarily attribute campaigns to specific actors. There's often no way to determine who's behind, say, a batch of misleading memes, if there isn't some kind of direct evidence tying disinformation campaigns to specific actors. And Ray wanted to be sure to point out that it's absolutely not always Russia's internet research agency planting disinformation campaigns in the West. I believe that's happening now. I think the capital riots in some way, <laughs> people are now, which I find a bit odd, like, oh, now, oh, yeah, it was domestic disinformation that was a problem all along in the U.S. And I thought, at least for me, I, I, I guess because the year before I had worked on the EU elections and all the, the, the stuff I had seen then was domestic in origin. It was, you know, things that were happening in Poland online were largely the result of, you know, people in Poland operating those things, the same in Spain, Italy the same, UK the same, France the same for the EP elections. So I, I, that's one area where I thought, okay, it seems that, I think that myth is being obliterated that, you know, disinformation or information operations are the realm of, you know, Russia and China. Um, and, and I think in part, at least in the US now, the capital riots are something that people were seeing like, oh, okay, I, not only the capital riots, but I think also, you know, you know, the anti-lockdown protesters, you know, COVID-19 um, uh, conspiracists. I think people are waking up to the, to the idea, to the reality that this is um, this is coming from inside the house, not outside. And I, I guess the one thing to emphasize is that those, because we have those vulnerabilities, is they are easily exploited by, you know, external actors. Ray's point there is well taken. This information can be homegrown, and sometimes the people creating it are groups of politically motivated users who gather on social media networks. Our next guest is Gianluca Stringini, who studies disinformation campaigns. He found that often groups of users will target specific social networks where they're confident some content will go viral. The interesting part, though, is these groups get together on social media to organize these campaigns. In other words, Gianluca doesn't just study how disinformation goes viral, but how it leaps across platforms. Yeah, I'm Gianluca Stringini. I'm an assistant professor in the uh, electrical and computer engineering department at Boston University. And broadly speaking, I do research on uh, data-driven security. So my work is on analyzing large-scale data sets to figure out and mitigate all sorts of bad activity online, which, you know, disinformation and misinformation is, is one of them. The big challenge of, uh, of web content in general is that it's difficult for people, it's impossible for people to tell where something comes from and they kind of need to take it at uh, at face value, right? So if I see a story, a news story, just the text, imagine for now, uh, I kind of have either to believe it or not. I don't have much information, you know, maybe uh, I need to base my judgment on my past experience or whatever, my, my view of the world or whatever. Automatically identifying if something is misinformation or not, just based on content, is very challenging. Honestly, I'm not sure if it's if it's even possible. We always need to be careful because coordination is not necessarily 
uh, an indicator of bad activity happening. So if you see, you know, probably a lot of activism and, you know, political campaigning and whatnot may look quite similar to coordinated disinformation if you, you know, if you don't look at it close enough, right? So we, we always need to keep that in mind. In our work, we focus on uh, kind of taking a holistic view of the web and web communities so we don't look at single online communities like Twitter or Reddit or Facebook, uh, but we look at how different communities discuss topics and organize activity and basically influence each other. So what we found in our work is that basically there are uh, polarized online communities where a lot of these hateful uh, activities actually organized, orchestrated, as well as conspiracy theories. Gianluca gave us examples of a few of the more influential polarized online communities, and they're ones you've probably heard about in the news. 4chan, 8chan, Parler, Gab, and subreddits like r the Donald. So there is this whole conspiratorial type of talk and uh, uh, toxic type of behavior and so on, which eventually trickles to mainstream communities. And this can be people organizing to go and attack, People of mainstream communities go and, you know, post toxic content and harass whatever YouTube posters or uh, Instagram stars or, uh, you know, uh, Twitter personalities or whatever. Uh, but it can also be them actually going and pushing these narratives that somehow, you know, were, um, you know, became mature on these, on these communities and actually push them to the mainstream. So if we look at a single community, and we base all our research on that single community, we miss a lot of context. So you can think of it as like, you know, we look at Twitter, we look at how misinformation um, spreads on Twitter. Uh, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. We see popular accounts on Twitter posting about all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories, but actually they did not come up with them, right? So these conspiracy theories were created and discussed and sort of... Uh, evolved from other communities. And so by putting all these things together, we can actually get a better context and say, yes, you know, that specific politician posted this crazy conspiracy theory, but this actually comes from Fortune or comes from uh, the Donald or, or whatever. Can you explain a, bit, a little bit about that work and, and how did you guys detect that? And what are the signals that pointed to you that there was some coordination going on? So imagine that there is a YouTube video uh, that suddenly starts receiving hate comments, okay? So if you are only looking at YouTube, uh, that's it, you know, we see a number of comments uh, coming out of the blue, but it's difficult to figure out where, they are, where are they coming from, what's the purpose behind them, and all of that. Instead, what we did was looking at YouTube links being posted on some of these communities like 4chan's um, Political Incorrect Board with the goal of, uh, you know, coordinating a, a harassment attack, a hate attack, and so on. So what we would see is that there is a thread being posted with a link to this um, YouTube video, which typically starts with something like, you know what to do, or whatever. And then we would see these comments appearing, but we would see that there is basically a temporal correlation between the discussion on the 4chan thread and the comments appearing on YouTube. So what we did, you know, as uh, uh, engineers, uh, we modeled these as uh, signals. 
So you can see the timing of the comments made on the 4chan thread and the timing of the comments on the YouTube video as signals. And you can look for coordination. You know, we have a lot of uh, techniques that can tell you whether two signals are coordinated, synchronized and all of that. This is interesting because this allows us to quantify how synchronized YouTube comments are to a 4chan uh, thread. And what we find is that the closer this synchronization, the higher the hate speech, basically. So we find that if a video is posted on 4chan for any other reason than uh, calling for an attack, people may go and comment there, but the hate speech would be low, okay? While uh, if actually the purpose is a coordinated attack, we see a spike in hate speech. But again, Gianluca isn't necessarily interested in the content itself. Understanding how to detect coordination could be just as helpful for platforms trying to moderate disinformation. But this uh, coordination measure allows us basically to identify these attacks without even looking at the hate speech. And so this solves a number of problems because language is difficult to model, you know, and uh, there are news lures appearing all the time, which we may not be modeling and all these kind of things. And different communities have different jargon. And so they might use different terms and so on. And so just by looking at this coordination, we can identify which videos are being attacked. And then the next step there, so once we identify these videos that have been attacked, uh, we took a step back and we looked at the videos and tried to figure out which characteristics do these videos have, which may tell us something about the type of attacks that are actually, the type of videos that are actually being attacked. And so can we use this to develop tools that actually would tell YouTube you know, as soon as somebody uploads a video, uh, you should be careful because this video may actually attract certain types of attack. So you may be, whatever, give priority to it when doing moderation and things like that. Gianluca finds hope in techniques like this, since it is much more difficult for an automated moderation system to detect this information when it's embedded in a video or a meme. You know, instead of reading uh, a wall of text, can you convey the same information with an image or a meme or uh, a short video and, uh, and so on? And that is happening. And we are seeing that happening in a number of contexts, including, you know, memes and disinformation. And so the challenge there becomes, can we make sense of uh, other types of media and analyze them at scale and so on and then figure out, uh, you know, how things are, uh, um, are actually uh, spreading online. Gianluca described to us an especially sophisticated and networked approach to coordinating viral campaigns. What you have to understand, though, is that there's no playbook for running one of these campaigns. Oftentimes, actors have to adapt to the ways platforms are changing. That's right. Social media companies make attempts to silence user accounts, URLs, and even types of posts often associated with this information. The people pushing that content, therefore, have to adapt. Our next guest, Fabio Gigletto, studies how actors respond to social media platforms' attempts to crack down on coordinated behavior. In the past few years, his research has focused on COVID-19 mis- and disinformation in Italy, but his findings apply to a much wider variety of content, too.
Yes, I'm Fabio Giulietto, uh, Associate Professor at the University of Urbino, and I'm working in the field of uh, mis and disinformation uh, uh, since the last few years. When uh, Facebook started using the term coordinated inauthentic behavior, uh, they hit an interesting point. Maybe they, they know about it, maybe uh, they were just lucky, but uh, the point is that um, looking at the coordination between uh, social media actors in spreading certain content, it is definitely uh, one of the uh, signals you can use to spot mis- and disinformation. And it is a useful kind of signal, not only because it is effective, but, but also because it is completely different from the traditional signals uh, used in this kind of uh, field. So basically, uh, most of the time we deal with the analysis of content because you uh, want to know if something is true or false or something in the middle. In 2020, Fabio and his colleagues examined what they call coordinated link sharing behavior, in which networks of public accounts on Facebook share the same news articles around the same time. So, for example, you uh, deal with the list of actors uh, well known for having spread uh, disinformation before. In both cases, the analysis needed to reach the point where you can actually use this kind of approach uh, requires a lot of work because even to analyze single content uh, requires uh, a lot of work from uh, people uh, trained or to, to fact check things. The challenge with the research, though, is that oftentimes those fact-checkers and researchers like himself aren't as fast as the bad actors. Someone fact-checked certain uh, contents uh, and they end up finding uh, what Facebook calls repeated offenders. So users, uh, websites, uh, pages, uh, which uh, repeatedly publish false uh, information. The problem uh, uh, with this list is that uh, this kind of list, they tend, they tend to uh, get outdated very soon. At least uh, this is what comes out from our experience when we look at the history of uh, uh, one specific network. You can clearly see that the same network of pages changed the, the domain they shared multiple times over the years. What, what happens is that when a domain becomes too well-known for its fame to spread problematic content, they simply drop that domain and they move to some, some other domains. They retain the, the power of the infrastructure they built in social media, for example, uh, a network of Facebook pages, and they start sharing a different domain. So if you uh, design a study which is based on a list of domain uh, built two years ago, it is, it, it is highly possible uh, that you are basically observing something which is not operative anymore. And there is a risk of underestimate the phenomenon. Fabio and his team also have to contend with the challenges of actors changing their techniques to make disinformation go viral, often adapting to new constraints imposed by platforms. What they are doing, uh, these people now, is to avoid their posts 
be recognized as a link, uh, both uh, because they want probably to avoid certain kind of controls, uh, but also because uh, the alternative of, of to posting a, a link uh, as a link as a type link is to post a photo and to add the link in the description of the photo. And uh, we all know that photos and uh, images, uh, generally speaking, tend to perform better within, within Facebook, uh, so they get uh, better performances for their post. And the, the, the very latest evolution of this thing, of this technique, is to post the link in the comment of the post. So not, not anymore in the description, you just, they just post a photo, which usually includes clickbait title, and uh, they add an emoji pointing down, so as to say, uh, look at the link in the comment. They immediately publish automatically, of course, uh, a link as the first comment on the post. It sounds like coordinated campaigns are constantly adapting to social media platforms. The actors behind them are always on the lookout for new ways to exploit these systems. Exactly. It's why studying disinformation is by no means a simple task. Next episode, we'll zoom out a little further, trying to understand how these platforms are manipulated by taking a look at the viral content itself and how that content is often tailored for specific platforms. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Viral Networks. Viral Networks is a production of Media Ecosystems Analysis Group. We're your hosts, Emily Boardman and Dulloway. And Fernando Bermejo. All episodes are produced and edited by Mike Sugarman. Julia Hong joined us as a scriptwriter and provided additional research. Music on this show was composed by Neil and our producer Mike. Funding to produce this series was provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And last, but certainly not least, we want to give a big thank you to all of the experts who joined us for interviews on this show. 